Welcome to ESG in 10, a podcast delving into the world of ESG 10 minutes at a time. We're your hosts, Charlotte O'Mara and Agnieszka Cochran, Senior ESG Specialists here at Fedante. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fedante ESG in 10. I'm your host, Agnieszka Cochran, and today I am joined by Kirsty Mackay-Fisher, Senior Analyst at Wavestone Capital, to talk about her latest research into ESG-linked remuneration. Kirsty, welcome. Thanks, Agnieszka. It's really good to be here. Kirsty, your latest ESG research investigates remuneration structures for company executives of the ASX 200 and the ESG hurdles linked to those REM structures. Why is this topic so important and why should investors be paying close attention to it? So essentially what we've done is look at how ESG issues have been woven into the fabric of each company's remuneration structure. Remuneration, or REM as we call it, is the mechanism the board uses to incentivize managers to prioritize the interests of shareholders. Now it's important investors pay close attention to REM structure. When we look at management remuneration, we want to see a structure that reflects the strategic goals of the firm, its financial health, culture, and risk tolerance. ESNG targets should be included in this mix, as the positioning of a firm from an ESG perspective has the potential to impact both its short and long-term profitability, and this ultimately impacts the valuation of a firm. The extent to which ESG issues are incorporated in the mix is, in our view, both an indicator of the firm's likely commitment to sustainable outcomes and the perceived materiality of the risk or issue to the future success of the business. Um, The components of REM can signal an alignment and, in some instances, a misalignment of governance structures to desired corporate outcomes. Unfortunately, though, weaknesses in these frameworks are often a contributing factor to poor financial outcomes. And this is what makes ESG alignment in REM not just relevant to ESG investors, but to all investors. So would it be fair to say that misalignment between the ESG strategy and ESG-linked REM could be an indicator of greenwashing risk? I wouldn't go so far to say it represents greenwashing, um, but it would certainly raise a red flag for us, and that would trigger further dialogue with the company. What was the most surprising thing you uncovered in your research? that you were not expecting to see? The lack of standardisation made our attempt at comparative analysis really difficult. Unfortunately, ESG metrics are often included as a part of a laundry list of individual performance objectives within broader social, strategic and governance categories. One particular problem we had was trying to establish the weight of an ESG metric within a broader strategic or non-financial bucket. For example, Cochlear's management STI is awarded on what it terms financial, which was 60%, and strategic 40% measures. While there are ESG metrics within that 40% strategic allocation, there are also plenty of non-ESG metrics in there too. So with no disclosure of the relevant component weightings within the strategic category, it was difficult for us to accurately report the percentage weighting of REM to ESG. Allocating the entire 40% will undoubtedly overstate the representation but equally, estimation of the proportion introduces some risk of bias, which can also be un- inaccurate. Another problem we encountered was determining how to weight policies with multipliers. And an example here would be Treasury Wine, which has a balanced scorecard multiplier overlay to its financial measures with outcomes ranging from zero to 1.2 times. 
So if we place these frustrations to the side, I've got to say we were genuinely pleased to see such a broad adoption of EST and REM. Our analysis indicated the vast majority, which was about 80% of ASX 200 companies, now link REM to some form of ESG. Now that's up from 73% in 2021. So this signals to me that ESG is an increasing priority for companies. When we break that down by industry, we also found that those with a significant environmental footprint and or social responsibilities led the way in adopting ESG metrics, which also makes sense given the increased scrutiny those sectors tend to face. Um, what was also quite interesting, though, was that the majority of ESG performance metrics were tied to the short term, even though corporate ESG objectives tend to be longer term focus. So think of 2030 and 2050 emissions targets, for instance. Of the 159 companies we found to have an ESG metric in REM, only 21, so that's 13%, included an ESG hurdle in their long-term incentive plan. And what did you conclude from that? I think it's most likely that ESG metrics can be challenging to measure, which then presents challenges in reliably measuring the metrics over the long term. We suspect that approaches will probably evolve over time, and until then, companies hopefully will be careful to explain why they've chosen to measure ESG performance in the short term and how they see that aligning with long-term strategic shareholder value creation. In your view, are the majority of the ESG-linked short-term incentives in the ASX 200 robust enough to drive change in these companies? And if not, what needs to change? It's really hard to make that determination. Um, I think it requires an assessment of how much change is enough. And I suspect each investor will probably have their own view on that. I do think we're seeing change. And this is playing out in exactly what we've been discussing today, which is the broader adoption of ESG criteria and REM. It's really hard to make that determination. I think it ultimately requires an assessment of how much change we think is enough. And I suspect each investor will have their own view on that. I do think we're seeing change, and I think this is playing out in exactly what we've been discussing today, which is the broader adoption of ESG criteria in REM. For these components to be included in REM suggests that the issues have already found their way and been identified as key areas of strategic focus for the company. We may not always agree with the choices that companies make, but this is where active engagement can come into play, in my view. Ultimately, the incorporation of ESG and REM comes down to aligning corporate strategy to an environment which is placing greater weight on sustainable outcomes. Government regulation tends to consistently evolve towards greater protection of people and the environment. Consumers are increasingly looking for ESG alignment in their purchasing decisions, as are investors, and this can have an impact on the cost of capital for companies. If a company is thinking about its long-term strategic positioning, it needs to bear these ESG factors in mind. At Wavestone, we strongly believe that responsibly managed companies are more likely to achieve a sustainable competitive advantage and provide strong long-term growth. As a result, we use a quality screen up front to assess and screen our investment universe. This process, which we call sustainable competitive advantage, screens out companies who we believe have a poor ESG track record and outlook. So what does best practice look like in your opinion? At this stage, there's no single set of metrics being incorporated or recommended as best practice. In our view, the inclusion of ESG metrics in REM probably should be nuanced and tailored to suit the positioning and desired strategic outcomes of the company in question. 
it's important to have effective metrics if a company wants to embed ESG in their culture. Now, I realize I haven't quite answered your question. So I guess ultimately, we believe best practice should be the provision of targets that are quantifiable, externally verifiable, and transparent. They should also be sufficiently challenging so as to encourage a greater push for ESG integration as opposed to allowing a simple uplift in executive pay. As I alluded to earlier, much like the design of traditional financial RAM measures, the ESG metrics applied should be tailored to align to desired stakeholder outcomes. And how will you be integrating this research into your investment process? At Wavestone, we strongly believe in active ownership. So we're already using the outcomes of this work to guide our engagement activities in CY23. We will have a particular focus on the companies which we've deemed to be laggards within the portfolio, and we're using engagement to push for a better alignment of ESG goals to REM outcomes for those businesses. It's also our plan to repeat this benchmarking work in our December 23 quarterly ESG report, and hopefully at this point we'll be able to report on some positive progress from this targeted engagement activity. Kirsty, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. If you like this episode and want to hear more about ESG investing at Fedante, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, as we will be releasing new episodes every few weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to you joining us next time.